Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 76. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. And you can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. On today's episode, we're talking about After Whiteness with Dr. Willie James Jennings, who is Associate Professor of Systematic Theology and Africana Studies at Yale Divinity School, and the author of a couple important studies, including The Christian Imagination, Theology and the Origins of Race, published by Yale University Press, and more recently, After Whiteness, An Education in Belonging, published by Erdman's. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. Amber Bowen, Grace Sengalang Ng, Dr. Chris Porter, Dr. Logan Williams, and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So with this episode, we are concluding our series on cultural identity. And I think this is just a really great place for us to end. Dr. Jennings provides such a great prophetic voice that speaks into this kind of construct of, of whiteness and its kind of hegemony in theological education in particular. But he also casts this wonderful vision for, for where we can go next. And I just really love that. And I'm wondering, what did you all take away from our conversation with Dr. Jennings? Yeah, so I think the thing that struck me the most is um, just seeing his hope of the vision of the multitudes. I think that was really helpful for me to see because after reading After Whiteness, like it was just a story of pain after pain after pain. And I was like just wanting to cry and weep. And I'm like, is there even any hope? So I'm grateful that he he talked about like having this expanded Christian vision of including all the multitudes and coming together as as a people of God. So yeah, I really appreciated that. Also, it was amazing that he read us one of his um, unpublished poems. Throughout his book, he like weaves the stories and poetry together. So hearing him actually read a poem, um, yeah, was just amazing. So that was really cool too. In this conversation, I really appreciated how the category of whiteness is set not within a, a skin tone per se uh, and not within an individual uh, identity uh, of someone as if it was someone you could point out on the street, uh, but rather in the category of relationality uh, in how we relate to one another and how those relationships are set up by the, the structures that we have and the history, uh, the, the genealogy of those structures uh, that we've had both in the West, but also in, in Christendom and in Christianity more broadly. Uh, so I really appreciate that relationality, uh, the social dynamic to whiteness uh, that he is pointing out here. Yeah, I really appreciated uh, the way that Dr. Jennings identifies the legacy of white Christianity and how much it's ingrained in our own Christian heritage in the West. Uh, he also provides a lot of helpful strategies for how to identify that. One of the things that um, he's going to talk about in this podcast is white Christians coming to grips with their Gentileness, the fact that they began as outsiders, as people who were not placed at the center. That's not reflected on uh, a lot in Western Christianity. And um, he talks about the benefits of coming to grips with that. I think the thing that really 
stood out to me in this conversation, particularly as, as someone in philosophy and as a woman in, in philosophy, is his conversation about rigorous scholarship and standards for rigor in the academy. Um, he talked about how really in the academy, it's hard to imagine serious intellectual work that doesn't allow us to live in the universal, meaning the objective, sort of the void of contaminating particulars. Uh, and, and what we fail to recognize is that that concept of rigor is actually a particular one. It's actually historically and culturally situated. And so I think he provides a really excellent way of thinking about serious scholarship as those who are seriously engaged in the discursive community or in the conversation. All right, and here's our conversation with Dr. Jennings. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Jennings. Glad to be here with you. Thank you for the invitation. So how about we begin by talking about your recent book, After Whiteness. I'm wondering if you can maybe give us a definition of whiteness. I think for some people, it might sort of raise flags like, oh, is this an attack on, on me for being white or something like that? How would you define whiteness? What is it and what isn't it? Oh, thanks for the question. How, how to define whiteness? Well, you know, we have to be, we have to uh, do this carefully because for so many people to even say the word whiteness already verges on hate speech. And so many people so identify with that word that um, they can't imagine anything that could be said about it that isn't going to hurt them. So um, the, the, the best way to define whiteness is to understand that whiteness is not phenotype not bodily characteristic, not cultural heritage, and not certainly not biology, <laughs> and obviously not a part of God's creation. Whiteness is a way of being in the world and a way of seeing the world. Whiteness is imagining the world as in a sense revolving around one's wishes and one's desires, one's visions of the good life, and then having the power to realize that vision, to realize that imagination. So whiteness is an aspiration to move to a certain kind of centered existence where things flow around you. Uh, it's, it's not directly imagined as an, a reality of control, but that's the way it works out. So whiteness really is a way of being in the world and a way of seeing the world at the same time. And oftentimes, not announcing to anyone that it is a way of being and a way of seeing. That's really fascinating. I'm in phenomenology. And what you're describing um, is a particular structure of experience that we study a lot in phenomenology. And it's, it is that the structure is called egocentrism. And that's not to say it's arrogance or, you know, the way that you would colloquially call someone who's egocentric, but it's just a way of understanding myself at the center of my experiences and the things that are around me, I exert a large amount of governing control over. Um, but phenomenologists will say too, that the way to decenter the ego is actually the arrival of the other. Uh, that that's actually the best way. So egocentrism is a disregard for otherness. Uh, would you say that that kind of fits in light of what you're thinking about with whiteness? 
Yeah, I think that's a that's a good part of it. That um, it's a disregard, but the I think the difference we want to hold on to is that whiteness is not simply a matter of uh, one's perception. It's also a matter of one's building a project, one's building activity, so that you can structure a world around you that does the ego work you just mentioned so nicely, so that you can structure a world around you and it without you or your children or your grandchildren, imagining yourself at the center, continue to be at the center just by the way things have been structured. So it's, um, it is um, a, the way I like to put it is, it's a misdirected energy that undermines the possibilities of a shared building of life with others. And that really makes me think of a, a quote that I heard uh, given this last week at the Southern Baptist Convention meeting uh, that I was just listening to on live stream. And of course, there was a lot of conversation about critical race theory and those sorts of things. And and one person said uh, that critical race theory is an, an inherent, or in this conversation about whiteness as well, that it's inherently racist because it assumes that because of the color of my skin, that I am either an unaware or aware oppressor. And it kind of categorizes me in that light. And I'm wondering what you would say to that, how would you would explain whiteness in light of that concern? You know, and I hear this a lot. Um, the, the, the concern raised by so many Christians that to um, point a, a light or a camera on their whiteness is already to put them in a, a place of uh, condemnation, as it were. And here, what we have to do is to explain to people the accomplishment of whiteness. And what do we mean by that? that historically there was a time in the world in which people uh, didn't understand themselves as white. But that um, the, the formation of something called whiteness meant that multiple peoples aligned and in a sense pressed their very being, their very way of being into this new vision, this new way of thinking about myself. So that um, a, a, a merger happened, a kind of Let's not use the word fusion because that suggests something that can't be taken apart. But a merger happened in which people have never imagined their existential self, as it were, um, different from whiteness. Now, for all people of color, we look at this and we're all mystified, no matter who we are, because any person of color has always had to think through, navigate their existential existence from the multiple stereotypes, the multiple images of what of who they are, their, their Asian-ness or their Africanness or their Blackness or their Indianness, everyone has had to say, see, okay, no, this is who I am. These are the multiple realities within which um, people have tried to describe me. Now, there are there are little pieces that are that are true that I have to, you know, like like taking like taking meat out, out of out, you know good fish meat from bones that I have to pull out. It's okay, this little piece is true, this little piece is true, but this whole picture is whack. This whole picture is messed up, but I'm gonna pull out these little pieces and, and I'm gonna go through this process of trying to figure out who I am 
that's not this entire image of Indianness or Asianness or Blackness. Whiteness, whiteness excuses people from that work. Be why? Because it's positive. It's presented as positive. And so I never in my life have to imagine a distinction between whiteness and my existential self. So when you say you're going to criticize whiteness with something called critical race theory or before that, what became what came to be known as political correctness and before that what came to be known as uh, any kind of black study. When you criticize whiteness, what you're saying to a wide group of people is that the important learning task, the important task that the people of color all around you do every day of separating image and stereotype and so forth from who they are, you've been excused from because it's, it's always positive. And why would you want to separate yourself from something that's always positive? Why would you want to separate yourself from something that's always seen as the true, the good, the beautiful, the noble, the fully human? You wouldn't. And so when somebody criticizes whiteness, you imagine they're criticizing that which is wholly good, but wholly misunderstood. That which you have now joined fully and need not make a distinction from. So what we're looking at, in effect, is what Robin D'Angelo calls white fragility. We're looking at the, um, the emotional, existential, and psychic reality of people being asked now to do what they have never been asked to do before, to carve space between those. And here, what we're what we're turning them back toward is the journey of their the journey of their ancestors here in this country, especially the the immigrant's story in America is the story of people becoming white. Back at, in the '80s, when white studies first began in so many places, this is what we were we, this is what we were thinking about that long history of how the Irish became white, how the Polish became white, how the Germans became white, how the J Jewish people became white, how many how many people stripped away or, or defanged or nullified the 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 strength of their ethnic identity in order to be seen as white, and so that's often what's driving. The, the criticisms and the anger and the fear and the anxiety of somebody casting light on whiteness. People can't imagine their lives apart from that. It's even worse for Christians because we Christians have, have played a crucial role in the weaving. It strikes me in, in that description there that, the, that there's a, a significant relational component to uh, whiteness. It's not just an, it's not necessarily that intrinsic individual is individual characteristic, but it's a relational definition in contrast to others. I come from a psych, psych background and we would call that from an interpersonal level, an egocentrism. Uh, so the, the nature of the world revolving around the individual and uh, Western cultures in general, large cities have often been criticized of being highly egocentric. The nature of the individual within that space is all about the individual and not about the relationship of that individual to their, their peers, to their networks and things like that. And I, I think some of this um, 
as I, I watch on from afar, uh, from the other side of the world, uh, some of these conversations within the SBC and uh, other places, it strikes me that often as egocentrism is dismantled in, in relationship, it becomes a form of incipient narcissism. And I'm interested in how you would see that relating to in the, in the whiteness space, um, that there is this uh, almost a, a cultural uh, incipient narcissism to uh, a any hegemonic cultural context. So in this case, uh, certainly whiteness. But I also wonder sometimes, would this be the same if in other contexts? Uh, certainly, I'm an Asian, um, and in Asia, you seem to get a similar sort of Asianness in China and things like that. But I'm not uh, certain as to whether or not it actually functions in the same way. Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, that's, that's a good question. See, well, let's what we want to do is let's let's have a wider um, a wider vision as we think about egocentrism here. So, white centeredness for so many people, they would never imagine this as egocentric uh, and, and bordering on narcissism. Why? Because it's a centeredness that is rooted in Christianity. And it's and it's fundamentally rooted in the vision of the people of God at the center of God's attention. Who were the people of God? Israel. And Christians imagine themselves as replacing Israel. Israel's been pushed out of the center. Now, that center is never imagined at the beginning. And, and in many ways, as we, if we move to this, this very moment, that centeredness is not imagined egotistically. It's imagined as providentially. Now that is crucial, right? I didn't ask <laughs> to be placed in this responsibility of caring for this new world. God placed me there. I didn't ask for these abilities. God gave them for, to me. I didn't ask to be placed in a, in a place of abundance. God did it for me. And because God has done this, I have responsibilities, right? So I, I can imagine an altruistic life. I can imagine a life of, of sacrifice. I can imagine a life of giving. I can imagine a life of loving. But all of it is a centered reality based on what I believe that where God has placed me. So for a lot of Christians listening to our conversation thus far, they would say, well, that doesn't, that's not me. I'm, I, I'm, I'm trying to do the will of God. What, what people don't understand is that they, they are inside a legacy. <laughs> of centeredness that in a sense becomes the seed within which whiteness comes to be. Whiteness comes to be inside of that. And then it's, it's a Christian whiteness that then gives birth to, a, to various nationalist realities that are all still aligned with that first reality of centeredness. God chose us. Then I am inside God's election. So the, the difficulty is a lot of people just would not understand what's being said about, you know, it, you know you're you know, uh, in, you know, individualistic and egotistic and, and um, narcissistic. Though I think all those, all those um, designations make sense. The difficulty here 
is that we are inside a particular reality of storytelling and story making. And that's what drives so much of this for. All of this is so deeply tied to Christianity, so deeply tied to our deepest sensibilities, our deepest theological gestures and, and conceptual moves that is very difficult for people who are not attuned to theology to understand, even though people are not Christian, they're still inside. They're inside whiteness. They are inside a Christian architecture. And that's what makes it so difficult to articulate and to critique because it's the basis upon which missionaries imagined themselves doing the good when they went and worked hand in hand with colonialists and hand in hand with industrialists to change a place. They imagine that they're doing the good. They imagine that they're bringing people to maturity. Even the the framework of uh, love of neighbor and love of enemy yes. means that one has to have an, an, a neighbor, an other, or an, and, and more specifically, an other who is construed as an enemy in order to be able to exert love upon them. In order to love someone, you need to other them if they're not already part of your group. Yeah, but then press it, press it just a little bit further, Chris. I mean, here, here's the thing that, that we, the legacy we're inside of is that Christianity has never, Christians have never imagined themselves as the other. We imagine ourselves as the host. <laughs> and those are the others out there. <laughs> but the, the Christian faith from the very beginning, if we come back to the book of Acts, we are the other. <laughs> now, as I like to say, most Christians never got that memo. Nobody ever told them that they were the other, that they were the thing, and I use the word on purpose, they were the thing that the people of God were discussing to allow into their life, into their story. Now, had that memo been given at the very beginning, we, I'm sure we would be in a very different conversation right now. Dr. Jennings, I'm wondering if we can kind of expand this a little bit, this conversation on whiteness to talking about gender too, because oh, yeah. the things that you mentioned, talking about centeredness uh, and this providential centeredness, it made me think about conversations about uh, gender within Christian circles in particular, where, you know, the man is sort of at the center and then the woman is kind of part of the orbit that's circling around, if you will. And so I'm wondering, obviously whiteness definitely applies to issues of race, but can it also be expanded to talking about gender as well? And how would you appropriate that? Oh yeah, it must. In my, in my recent book, After Whiteness, I try to um, show the deep connection and how um, maturity is imagined and how um, stepping forward to do the work of God in the world is imagined in one body particular. And that's the white male body. But now what's important here, and, and this comes right to your question, Amber, I mean, this, this is what's crucial for us. All of Western education, all of Western education is shaped, turned toward one central image of formation, one central image of the educated state. And it is that image that is imagined at the heart of creating the mature, the mature individual 
a mature people, a mature nation, able to lead and to bring good gifts to men, to use the old language. And what is that image? It is the image of a white, self-sufficient man who embodies three, what I call demonically derived virtues, control, possession, and mastery. And that image has been placed before all of us, all of us, all peoples, no matter what their background, all peoples, no matter what their genders, that image has been placed in front of us as what we must become in order to have voice that is recognized and respected, voice that is heard even by ourselves, that we will only take ourselves seriously if we achieve that form. And so it's, it's at the very heart of what's imagined as what it means to bring people to maturity. When, when, when peoples were imagined as a reaching maturity by the colonialists, they were imagined as stepping forward like one full, strong man with one voice. Th that very image been the heart of nationalist dream, that we will rise like a powerful man and take our place in this world. And that trickles down all the way to kindergarten. Yeah, thanks for that, uh, Dr. Jennings. Um, I really appreciated reading your book, um, After Whiteness. I actually just really wanted to like sit and weep after reading it. It was just, yeah, really heavy. And I felt like I could relate to so many of the stories of people of color um, as a Filipino American, um, just feeling out of place in um, like the theological education and in these predominantly white spaces. Yeah, feeling inferior and seeing how colonial mentality has affected me and my community. Um, and so it was just really powerful reading the stories. And also um, I appreciate your vulnerability in sharing your feelings like throughout the book, um, your bits of like poetry and reflections. And yeah, it's like, I could feel that anger coming um, when you reflected <laughs> about your anger. And I'm just like, wow, like I just had so many feelings while reading your book and I'm so appreciative of it. Um, and so just reflecting on it. Um, so how do we as people of color overcome our internalized racial oppression to have a voice in theological education? Well, Grace, thank you for your kind words. And um, you're asking, the, I think, the crucial question of the moment. You know, I, I think what we have to do is we have to, the first thing is remember what brought us into the academy. What, what, were, the, what were the questions? What was the curiosity that, that brought us? As, as I stated in the, in the opening chapter, the secrets chapter, many people, there are, there are so many motivations for, for why people come into the academy. Uh, a big one is to escape, <laughs> to escape limitation, to escape, uh, escape confinement, to escape small worlds and people's trying to make them comfortable in small worlds that they don't want to be comfortable. So, so they, they seek escape. They seek a wider world. They seek, um, uh, they seek answers to the questions and their curiosity is pushing them forward. But what happens for all of us when we come into the academy is at some point in time, we meet him. We meet him. 
he meets us and he says, okay, you want to be here? And we nod our heads and say, yeah, we, I want to be here. And then he says, then you must become me. You must become like me. You must put down your desire and take up my desire. You must put down your dream and you take up my dream. And then I'll, I'll give you back a little bit of your dream. And what is his dream? It is the dream of the, of the colonial masters looking out on his sons and his daughters, but mostly his sons, looking out on his sons. And Grace, he says, to, he says that question. He says, who must my sons become in order to carry for my colonial holdings, to carry for my legacy, to be better than me? They must become white, self-sufficient men. The sons hear the colonial master, father's dream, and then they turn that dream into their aspiration. And then we are drowned in those aspirations. So the first thing, the first way we get out from underneath the reality is that we take hold again of the lifeline of what brought me here? What were my questions? What's my curiosity? And then the next thing we do is we start to do the fragment weaving that I talk about in that first chapter. We recognize that, that we're not going after some kind of holism. We're not going after some kind of mastery of all knowledge, even of a field. We're playing in the fragments. And then we, we take the fragments of whatever discipline that we've decided that we're going to play in, and we take the fragments that comes from the fragmentations of our peoples by the colonial hammers, the pieces and the shards and the, and the stories and the wisdoms and the things that are there. And then we start the weaving. We start weaving those things together. That's where we begin. We start doing a different kind of weaving. There are other steps, but those are the crucial first steps. We have to reclaim the desire, not his desire, our desire. And for some people I've talked to, they have to take a big step back because they got so lost in his desire. They've got to say, okay, wait a minute. Am I in the discipline I want to be in or the discipline somebody told me that I'm good at? Am, am I in the kind of place I want to be in or the kind of place I'm expected to be in? Where am I in this? And for some people, that's a scary set of questions to start to ask. But on the other side of it, they find themselves. It reminds me of um, Franz Fanon's uh, concept of, of alienation that colonialism does and performs upon non-white people, that they create this, this gatekeeping set of values. And they say, you, you know, you have to accept my kinds of values, which means actually devaluing yourself, devaluing your, your non-white self. And Franz Fanon talks about how that alienates the safe, the self from the self. <laughs> um, and that, the, the, and the kind of processes of reclaiming that is like, just incredibly, you know, he says is quite difficult, but that gatekeeping that you identify, right. In order to belong here, you have to become me, mm -hmm. um, is often coupled with the rhetoric or it's, it's often made invisible, right? It's not, it's not packaged as you have to become white. It's, you have to do things the right way. Right. You have to be a real scholar. Right. Uh, you have to be critical. You have to be objective. There are these strategies that are used to erase the fact that this is actually historically contingent and is portrayed as kind of epistemologically universal. 
the way that we do education, the way that we do research. Um, what are the strategies that whiteness uses to erase its own particularity? How do we how do we particularize the methods by which whiteness gatekeeps? And how do we create a new framework in its place? I, I, this, is a, this is a good question. How, how, do we, how do we draw whiteness down into its particularity, as you said? How do we draw whiteness down into its provincial reality? Well, we, we come back to what you, what you began by talking about. You, you alluded to Fanon, and I think that's right. Um, but here we want to remember this is an invitation. That man stands at the door and says this to everyone, not just people of color. He says this to everyone. And, and everyone makes that decision. Everyone makes that decision. Whether they are people of color or they're white, they make that decision. And it's at that moment of decision where the, where the invisibility begins. And that's, that's what's key, you see. Um, the danger with language particular and universal is that that, that man loves that language. <laughs> he, he loves that language because he has positioned you to have to make a decision. And that decision is you will move now on the, on the bridge between universal and particular, universal and particular. Particular is there, but it is not where you're aspiring to. You're aspiring to the universal. You can come back on the particular if you want. But what has to be done first is to come back, come back to the invitation, come back in a sense to the price of the ticket. And we have to cast a light on him. Now, how do we cast a light on him? I have this, this poem that I didn't put into the, into the book. Please, please, fear poor men who are smart. Be terrified of bright women who were raised in lack. These people are dangerous inside thinking walls where they feel the power of thought that can make them pastless and thoughtfully thoughtless, free now to rationalize their hungers, they are fit for making walls, destroying doors for all who might take their gain and return them poor. Their only hope now, those windows, not quite fit for the frame with seeping sunlight and invading cold air, keeping the room outside so everyone can see their breathing. The, the point of the poem is this. The, 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 the poem talks about what it means for smart people who want power to enter the academy. And in the poem, I say, beware of smart people who want power. Because once they enter the academy, they learn 
that the bargain for power requires that they conceal themselves in the quest itself. To, to have this power, to have voice, I conceal myself because myself gets in the way of the power that I want. To have the powerful voice I want. And so the, it, it begins by helping people rethink the quest. So a, a simple place where this is played out. It's played out in the relationship between scholarship and teaching. That's a simple place where it's played out, right? Everybody who's hired to enter the academy is hired first to teach. And almost everybody who enters the academy is told that what's really important is not your teaching, it's your scholarship. The teaching is there, yeah, yes, yes. But the scholarship is what's important. And, and that's what you give yourself because that is the place where you hide and your voice emerges powerfully in what you're writing. So we, we have to start to take apart the, the points where the bargain is struck. And we, and we do that recognizing that for so many people, this is the deal they made and they want they want what they have been promised by making that deal. That's how we begin to, to challenge it. So now, what, how does that then come to the, the problem of the particular and the universal? Well, the universal is imagined as a place of power. It is a place of adjudication. It is a place where all truths come to rest. And that is the place I want to live. I mean, that, that's, the, that's at the end of the day, that's the neighborhood, that's the suburb I want to be in. I want to live in the universal suburb. And so for so many people, they can't imagine serious intellectual work that isn't going to allow them to live at the site of the universal, or another way to put it, at the site of, of the imperial position from which they can look at the entire global terrain and judge the true, the good, the noble, the serious, the thing that one builds life on. So there, an education has to be recast, recast away from the bargain. And if we can do that, the question about the universal and the particular will start to crumble in our hands. Yeah, as you were talking, it reminded me of an experience that I had in seminary. I was the only woman in my master's program, in the entire program. And I remember walking into class one day, hearing the guys talk, and we had read a journal article before coming to class. And the comment was, man, did you read that article? It was really, really amazing. You never would have imagined it was a woman who wrote it. And that was such a striking like, comment to me because I realized it was, a, it was considered good insofar as the fact that she was a woman was something you never could have guessed. She managed to shed her mm -hmm. femaleness and and participated in a kind of discourse that you're describing as universal. Mm -hmm. um, so that 
obviously led me to interrogate a whole bunch of stuff of what does it mean to be a woman in this academic space. Um, but my, my question for you is, in, in thinking about that, um, you described the academy as, you know, this one man uh, and the power structures there and the gatekeeper. And how do we begin to think about the academy as a kind of discursive community that does have norms and does have um, standards of argumentation, standard rights and privileges and rites of passage and those sorts of things by which we would recognize, oh, this is a good scholar. You know, this is someone who is dialoguing in a very fruitful way here. Um, because we, we do have criteria for being able to distinguish what those things are. But how do we um, how do we prevent it from becoming capitulated into simply the, the the power structure? And how do we let that truly be a discursive community? That's a great question. We we have to come back. We have to come back to the design of an ember. This is the key. I mean, the, what you said. There's so many elements that um, show that we are in somebody else's design. The design of what is considered rigorous the design of what uh, is considered a proper discursive practice. The design, uh, as I said in the book, the design of what it means to have attention and to cultivate attention. And so what we have to do is we have to, we have to open up those designs. Um, and you know, anyone who teaches for a while, they start to see this exactly. They see that what, what, I'm, what I'm putting on the table with my students is I'm building a bridge between the designs I was given and the designs I want to give to them. I'm building a bridge from the learning, the way the learning experiences were crafted to the learning experiences I want to craft now. But here is the problem. For so many of us, we were told, don't think, don't think, just bring it forward, just bring it forward. Close your mind off. Don't just bring it forward. There it is. And what, what we're being told at that moment is that man who was at the door has now returned and said, shut up, don't think, just bring it forward. Now, what I called rigor, you must call it rigor. What I called the particular criteria for what is seen as serious, you must do it. And there, there is where we have to put both our feet down, stand, stand up straight, as they say, like someone getting ready to play an instrument and play our own tune. There we have to rethink. And this is why I said in, in my design chapter, we have to rethink, rethink three parental designs, the design of attention, the design of affection, and the design of resistance. And in that way, um, what we must never do, what we must never do is allow the words rigorous, serious, gravitas, never allow these words to move forward in time from their colonial origins of Western education to us without them having been crucified. And then slowly, through the Spirit, resurrected. And they will not be the same on the other side. At least they shouldn't be. I have met so many people who consider themselves very serious Christians 
And their definition of what's serious is no different from one who has nothing to do with religion whatsoever. And I would always ask, why is that the case? And rarely would I get an answer. Normally what I would get is, just is. And we know nothing just is because all was created out of nothing. <laughs> so nothing just is. <laughs> yeah, so what I'm hearing you saying is that uh, it's important for us to interrogate what our concepts of rigor are or what uh, what is passing for those particular standards because the reality is that many of them could really just be products of a particular period in time and space and not actually these universal uh, concepts of what is truly the thing in it itself of rigorous scholarship. Um, well, yes, that is right. But us also add the other piece that that what's what we've inherited is not simply an idea of rigor. It's a comportment of what rigor looks like. It's a disposition of what rigor is supposed to sound like. And so a discursive practice is not just of the brain, it's of the body, right? My, uh, my, my dear friend, Paul Murray, who is uh, uh, associate director of the Wabash Institute, he was sitting with a group of um, young scholars at the Wabash Center. And there was young one, young one young woman who was uh, making a point ar around the table. She's a um, newly minted PhD. And she started doing this with her hands. And, and Paul said, what are you doing? And she said, uh, I'm stroking my beard like my my my, my Dr. Vater. <laughs> I'm stroking my beard. <laughs> because when her Dr. Vater was making a serious point and wanting to be heard and making clear that she, he was now about to penetrate to the heart of the matter, he did this. That's what she was doing. Now, that's a part of rigor. We laugh because we know if that's a part of rigor, then rigor is a very bad idea. <laughs> so sw switching gears a bit, we wanted to ask what kinds of fracturing, if you will, do you believe must occur within white evangelicalism to lead to health? Or maybe more uh, critically, what does crucifixion look like? for white evangelicalism and what kind of crucifixion for white evangelicalism would be required in order to bring it up on the side of resurrection? Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting question. What kind of fracturing, what kind of crucifixion, crucifixion of white evangelicalism would be necessary for something called evangelicalism to be on the side of resurrection? That's a challenging question. I, I think for, and this would be true for all of Christianity in the West and including evangelicalism, the, the first thing would be to be introduced to our Gentile origins. We, we, we have never been introduced to that. Most Christians I meet have no idea what it means to be a Gentile entering the story of another people. And this gets back to the centered matter we were talking about earlier. But what's crucial here is that uh, we accept, we must begin to accept what it means to think the faith from the margins. The great um, Roman Catholic theologian, 
uh, M. Sean Copeland wrote a great essay many years ago um, called uh, To Be a Thinking Margin, reflecting on the positionality of womanist, womanist theologians and ethicists. And she talks about what it means to be a thinking margin, to be one who thinks from the margins, thinks from the position where one has been placed at the very edge of history, at the very edge of attention, and to think life from that. And from that position to be able to see the operations of power and oppression, but also to spy out possibilities of a liberation of emancipation from that position. Well, she argues so nicely that really that's the position from which Jesus invites those who follow him to see. And that is also the position from which Christianity is formed for the Gentiles. We are at the margins. And so that, that's the first thing to accept, accept that positionality. We are not the point. We are not the point of the story. We are not the point. The point is God. Now, to press that even further, the point is a journey for us to move from the margins to the margins, to, to move to those who are also placed at the margins, and at the margins to tell, start to tell a different story. So I think that's the first thing. The, the second thing, and we've been already been talking about this, Christianity gave birth to the modern racial condition. Christianity gave birth to whiteness. There is a racial architecture to modern Christianity. And there is a Christian architecture inside modern racial reasoning. And so, so many Christians have to be given the true, the deep story and history of this problem of whiteness. And for evangelicals, what that means is that for the first time, and I think this is what's happening in so many places, why you know, critical race theories become such a fetish, a fearful fetish in their minds, because for so many, now for the first time in their lives, someone is saying that you have to see yourself as a Christian different from your whiteness. And for so many people, that is the most frightening thing they have ever heard because they are in a legacy. And sometimes they don't even know this legacy, the legacy of their, of their grandparents and great-grandparents who achieved whiteness. People stopped seeing them as Italians or Irish or Polish or Dutch. They just saw them as good, solid white Americans. And they changed their names. And they were thrilled when their grandchildren were born and raised and they did not know the mother tongue. Thrilled when their grandchildren did not know themselves as anything other than white Americans. And there are so many people who don't know that history. And we're not just talking about white Americans, we can, we can put this in many other countries where that, that nationalist vision of what is normal has taken hold. So, that is another painful point of crucifixion that has to happen. And then I think there's a, there's a third matter that has to finally be put on the table. And that is the relationship of evangelicals to land and property and money. Evangelicals have 
always been very close to that terrible choice, either serve God or mammon. And evangelicals have been able to do both. And they've been able to quietly lie to themselves and say, I'm serving God when in point of fact, they are serving mammon. And you, you can say all people love money, but if we think about the configuration of evangelicalism, we have to say evangelicals love money. They love money because many of them are convinced that God gives them money in order for God to do what God wants to have done in the earth. That God can't do it without the money they have. <laughs> and so now what's, what's tied to that is land. It's tied to that is land and real estate and property. The book has yet to be written about evangelicals' relationship to land ownership, private property, real estate, and their deep commitment to it, their deep commitment to it. So, and that is incredibly painful. If you start to talk about these matters, you will get people very upset. Their immigrant past, their deep love of money, their commitment to a particular capitalist vision of, of private property, and their unrelenting sense of centeredness and non-marginality, these are the things that will keep evangelicals awake at night having to think through. It really seems to me as an outside observer, and I'm going to make that tro trope of being an Australian and looking on from the outside, uh, but here in Australia, we, we're, we're a, a, a fair way further down the, the secularization line uh, if there is a line there to be had, uh, where Christendom, uh, while Australia was built on, ostensibly built on uh, Christian values, it was built as a secular, explicitly secular nation. Uh, and Christendom has been on the wane here for probably more decades than it, than it is in the US. And yet the, what you point to in, the, in that rise of the intertwining of whiteness and the nationalistic vision is no less uh, on on the rise here. Uh, certainly, if Australians can f try to figure out what it means to be Australian, uh, it has something to do with being a good model citizen, uh, which is usually a white person because we we had a literal white Australia policy up until the fifties. But I'm interested in this from a from the uh, position of the church. Uh, how does this waning of Christendom that we're seeing globally going on, uh, how does that help with uh, the church decentering itself uh, and Christians really considering themselves as others within the world, uh, as, as the, the, the minority that, that aren't, uh, that, you know, or don't have the, the uh, geocentric or heliocentric vision of everything revolving around them? But here, Chris, this is a great question. But now remember, um, to be decentered is not the same thing as losing power and losing clout. So Christians losing clout 
losing gravitas, losing cultural capital, losing um, voices that are heard doesn't mean that that um, the vision of a centered existence is le- lessening. It just means that people are upset and angry and resentful that um, they're not being listened to. Because this, even, even when you're not being listened to, if you imagine yourself still at the center, you imagine that's where you should be, then you are, in point of fact, ripe for um, the same kind of resurgence that created the Nazis, right? Because you should be at the center. <laughs> you, you shouldn't, you, you, should, you should be listened to because the very message you have to offer can organize the world toward the true, the good, and the beautiful. But now, let's be careful. Um, what's at play here is the, the, the thing that so many, so many people have been afraid to look at, that um, the number of Christians in the world is not decreasing. The number of white Christians in the world is decreasing. <laughs> And that, that's a problem. <laughs> that's a real problem. And I, it's a problem in so many theological institutions across the planet. And I've been talking to a lot of people in many parts of the world. Because the students who are coming are students who have imagined their Christianity, in many cases, in the right way. Some have already, you know, as they say, drunk the Kool-Aid and imagined themselves as centered Christians. But so many understand themselves at the margin. So many understand themselves as that other. So many understand themselves as not aiming to rise up and control the nation. They just want to see people get fed and get clean water. They just just want the trash to stop collecting in their communities. They want to see the planet cared for. And they want their stories finally woven beautifully and clearly into Christian a true Christian vision. And so um, the challenge for so many is to, to see, maybe for the first time again, a true communion. A true communion. The, 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 longer, the longer we have homogeneous churches, the more painful um, this transition will be. The longer we have churches, that are uh, all of one, whatever the one might be, the more painful it will be. Because at the end of the day, that, that vision of church is a vision of church that seeks centered existence. And so we, we are moving, hopefully, in many places. But this gets back to you know, the question Logan asked about the crucifixion. We are moving toward what I hope will be uh, adjoining, painful but necessary, and on the other side of the pain are the real possibilities of a Christianity that actually makes sense to the world. A Christianity where people are compelled to be together and share their stories and learn each other's stories. That that's what we, that's what we're aiming for. What is the hope you hold on to for theological education in the midst of the pain of white supremacy? That's a great question. 
Well, as I always say, hope, hope is a discipline. And so um, I am disciplined by hope. And that hope is rooted not in sentiment, not in, in, in what I, my, my you know, well wishes. My, it's centered in the resurrected body of Jesus. So my hope is disciplined by his life. But that being said, it hits the ground right at the sight of the multitude. And I, I, am, I am excited about the multitude. I'm excited about people who um, choose to be together. And, they, and the, they choose to be together crossing the boundaries of hatred and alienation and segregation. And I think theological education is on the cusp, is on the cusp of being such a place. It's a great thing that some schools are dying. The schools that have always imagined themselves as homogeneous, homogeneous units, as we used to say back in my seminary days, where, where, where it's basically the same kind of people. I'm so glad those schools are dying. And I'm glad that the schools that exist and are struggling are re realizing that they have a pretty complicated group of students who are coming to them that do not fit that pattern. And, and they're, they're coming to that beautiful crisis, that crisis grace where they are saying, okay, either we're going to change or we're going to die because we can't change these students into us. They're refusing to be changed into us. Now, there are some schools who have enough money and, and enough manipulative structures to still try to assimilate students into their, into their form. But you know, increasingly, they don't have enough money to, to pull it off anymore. And they don't, have enough, they don't have enough devious people in them to pull it off. And so increasingly, their schools are starting to say, we actually have to change. We have to rethink curricula. We have to rethink um, who we are. And we also have to start looking for a different kind of professor. This is, the, this is the fight ahead of us. Doctoral formation in the Western world is still formation into white, masculine, self-sufficient form. It is. It doesn't matter if the, if, if the place considers itself liberal, conservative, orthodox, new orthodox, you know, hetero, it doesn't matter. That formation is still colonial. That formation is still imperial. And so we, we, are, we have a fight over doctoral formation that is yet to happen. And so at some point in time, we will have to blow up doctoral formation and start again because it's, it's um, too deeply wed to that man. That man reigns supreme when it comes to forming a doctoral student. But once that happens, once we start to really challenge that, then the possibilities, the possibilities are there to actually have a place of education that when people come, they're surprised, but yet they will say, this is what I hope for. Dr. Jennings, it's been an honor and a privilege. Thank you so much for, for joining us and for uh, sharing some of your prophetic voice with us. Glad to be here with you all. Carry on the good work.